0: Ladies me gentlemen, The rest of
1: y'all know
0: where I'm Yeah. none y'all me back? Back to Miami Vice. I'm I'm of course one half of your co-hosting partnership, Blake Howard. I'm here as always with my extremely reliable and May I say, she can take down a Haitian uh, prostitute security guard <laughs> with just a Vulcan neck pinch. It's Katie Walsh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen.
2: Wow. I didn't know I even I could do that, Look, <laughs> but I'm sure it, I could. <laughs> it's,
0: it's so intuitive at this point. You, It's just muscle memory. You don't even exactly. know how good you are. Listen, this show is amazing. It's a gift. Katie and I are blessed with your listener. Uh, for the people who are listening to this show, we have so much fun talking to the guests and As the show has continued to evolve, uh, we have just had this incredible uh, ability to uh, uh, find the attention of fascinating and interesting and insightful people who have not only been directly involved with Miami Vice in some way or are huge fans of the film, but now people who have finally, I guess, connected the two Miami vices the hallowed turf of one of the greatest television shows ever made uh, in in the United States and one of the most influential and then finally Michael Mann's Revisitation that we've been sort of occupying uh, the territory of for so long and look In Australia, I often receive all of my morning LA mornings worth of emails bleary eyed uh, (laughs) and so if there's any emails that come to me during the day, usually my alarm goes off. I start checking my email and let me tell you, there's nothing that will wake you up more starkly than a subject line that says, I was sound supervisor for Michael Mann. <laughs> Within that email, uh, our great guest who is with us today talked about starting his very early career as a sound engineer on Miami Vice, the TV show, which Katie and I were completely blown away with, also working with Mr. Mann on collateral and now. Miami Vice 2006, which we are talking about here on Miami Nice. It's my great pleasure to welcome Elliot Coretz. Welcome to Miami Nice. Thank you so much. Happy to be here with you. Oh my goodness. So please, can we just start? I know so much of our show has been about the contemporary Miami Vice, but you're a young man, one of your first jobs in your entire career. Please just take us back to Sure. What, an inc- what what a day or a week or a series was like working on this show that like so many people talk about. Because I imagine if we were just talking about recently the decadence of with which movies were made um, before 2008, before the global financial crisis hit, I cannot even fathom what movies slash television looked like in the 1980s. So please, uh, we'd love to hear everything about it. And thank you just again, once again, for being a part of the show.
1: Sure. Um, well, it's funny, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface the story about the TV show with when I was working on the feature with Michael, uh, there was one point in time where I, I said to him, you know, is there anybody else besides you and I that are connected to the TV show and that it has to do with the movie? And he thought about it for a while. And he said, there's only one other person. The actor who portrayed Jose Hierro's bodyguard, Big, big yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I can't remember Ken Merzé said he had a story arc uh, as a cartel guy uh, in the TV show.
2: Amazing. So, so there's only three people.
1: So, so I guess all three of us are the only ones that actually went the whole arc from TV show to feature. And my connection with the TV show actually goes all the way back to the pilot. So I was a very young editor working at Universal. And they let you start at 11 or 12 back then.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I, I, yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway I, 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 was, I was a young editor at Universal. And at the end of the uh, working on television, at the end of the season, uh, there was always pilots for new shows uh, to work on. And um, I ended up working on the pilot of this new kind of procedural detective show. And back then, this isn't film, this is pre-digital. In film, when they turned over the reels to us to save money, they were in black and white. They didn't strike color prints to give to the editors. So um, I had black and white reels that I worked on and it kind of looked like an interesting show, but I I wasn't sure about anything special about it, not realizing until much later when, when you work, when they mix it, then you see the color, I saw the colors. <laughs> and that's what, you know, the show, that's the first thing that strikes you uh, working on that show is, oh my God, there's pastels. There's, right. you know, there's all these colors and all that. And and yeah, that was all lost on in us initially because we didn't know. We were just, it was, it was kind of a cool uh, show, but we didn't get how cool.
0: Brothers Keeper for anyone who doesn't remember, it's written by Anthony Yerkovich, who cre- you know was one of the show's creators, and it's like almost if you look at Brothers Keeper, especially the Phil Collins in the air tonight, like it's it's like the it's like the prototype almost yeah. in many ways. It provides the sort of scaffolding for what we see in My Vice. That's amazing. Obviously,
2: well, it, it, yes,
0: in the air tonight still gives me goosebumps. Yeah,
2: I mean, how could it not? Yeah, I just can't
1: not associate it with the show Um, and a funny aside to this all. So I worked on the pilot at Universal and then I left and went to work at another facility. There was another company at that time, Stephen Cannell, that was prolific Mm -hmm. in TV back then. The A-Team and all these other shows. And I went to work on a brand new show, uh, also kind of a detective show called Hunter with uh, uh, this guy, Fred Dreyer. He used to be a football player. And initially, Hunter was just this straight ahead kind of cop and robber show like all the others that preceded it. And it was on the same network, Uh, it was on NBC. After a few episodes of Vice, they had a meeting at Cannell, and they said, we have to change our show. We have to do something. (laughs) And suddenly, Hunter started having theme music that went throughout it, a la what Vice did, trying to pick up capture a little bit of the, of the magic because the world was abuzz with the TV show, Miami Vice.
2: So I'm so curious, I mean, talking about theme music, like I am really obsessed with some of the songs that man chooses, especially for the Miami Vice movie. I mean, yes. is he working with a music supervisor? Is he like, have these things in mind? Like, is that something that you would talk to him about? Uh,
1: I'm, so am so when I, as a sound supervisor, I'm in charge of everything you hear, other than the music. Mm-hmm. In the, you know, I'm I'm dealing with the dialogue, the effects, the design, the backgrounds, the foley. I coordinate with the music people, and you know we try to you know we all have to play in the same sandbox. Right. And so it's nice to know where they're going, so we can work with each other and not oppose to each other, because typically in a movie, if you're if it's music or sound effects, music wins. And yeah. so I I try not to waste my resources. Anyway, Michael uses a lot of composers, and he has a lot of people. There's so many different pe- people. It, typically, the music department on his movies I found was the largest of any show because he uh, typical composers will have specific music editors that work with them. And so there were groups of different editors often for the different people um, on the show. And this, also, this
0: doesn't count Moby hiding under a desk, apparently. Indeed, you know, like That's just uh, another spare composer for you. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and sometimes it's interesting because for Academy consideration, the composer has to have a certain number of minutes, I believe, um, in, the, in the movie. So sometimes that can become problematic because he uses so many different people. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we, I got to work with them and... You know, Michael also gets involved with the music editors in sort of redoing the music. Okay. And and so some of the the pieces got recut uh, very often um, to kind of fit better to what Michael wanted to do. And then enhanced also, uh, when they did one of these nights, um, initially um, it was a more bare bones recording and then brought in a a music producer to add more layers to it uh and make it more interesting with cowbell
0: (laughs) (laughs) more Um, cowbell i (laughs) I had to say um, it i got it it. (laughs) jerry we gotta have more cowbell no but i was just gonna say um it's really interesting that you say that because he has later especially on the, the films you're working with was working with um well, working with people like Chris Cornell and and, and those guys to uh, an audio slave to to create some sounds but the cuts of the audio slave songs in both collateral and my advice are nothing aren't like the album because like it's like you know uh, you know post third verse coders get dragged to the front and then roll straight into a chorus which doesn't sound like it does in the movie but just for the flow of the scenes and the timing of the crescendo of the things they change so that's really interesting that he's like he wants the sound and he knows what he wants out of it but it's not it's almost like never exactly, never exactly what it was uh, yeah. in his head to make it to that final cut, especially in the later films.
1: Well, you know, and I've never worked with a filmmaker who puts in as much energy and effort and time. And I've never worked with every filmmaker in the world. So, I, but uh, when we're working, uh, he is in six of the morning watching the movie, and then we go to the mix stage, and at the mix stage for twelve hours or fourteen hours. And then he's back to the editing room afterwards at 10, 11 at night or so to work with the editors. So I kind of did the math and I think there's about two hours to sleep. Oh my God. So he's a a powerhouse that way where when uh, he is in, he is so in and you know, is on every little detail for me, for the the sound of the movie, it's wonderful that he is so in tune to all the details because it gives me many opportunities uh, to be creative. And um, there, he's also been very, very generous with the sound recording budgets. Um, on Miami Vice the movie, uh, my colleague and I went to Miami for a week to record, which is just, I mean, there, there was probably six figures spent on just the sound recordings we did. Uh, which were, I mean, we rented an airfield so we had a place to record the Ferrari and all the other vehicles. Um, we went out with the speedboats for three days, wow. staged, okay. our own, staged our own races. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, we got access to the Adams airplane, the experimental airplane that they used for the, the drug run, and um, recorded that. And I have a very funny story about uh, what happened on one of the scenes in the movie. When you see the that there's a shot of the atoms coming in low over yes. um, uh, so open trees and stuff when they're coming back to mainland. Uh, well, earlier that day, we were at the airport uh, rigging up the airplane uh, with microphones to record this. So there wasn't enough room in the plane. It's a really small plane. So we could not go inside while they were flying around doing the scene. There was just room for the pilot and the Act, the stunt person who was portraying, I think, I think if I remember right, it's I think is it Tubbs flying in and Crockett on the, uh, as a co-pilot. Yeah. So uh, they were dressed up to look like them. Sorry, it wasn't Colin and Jamie. <laughs> um, anyway, there was no room for us to be in there. So we rigged it up and told the actor who was playing uh, Crockett, when you you know hit record. So he, we, we would get the interior sounds of playing. Then we went to that spot on location where the plane was supposed to do the low flyby. Well, the pilot of that plane was annoyed that it was taking us so long to rig the plane up and tape down the microphones. Said, I gotta get going, we gotta shoot this thing. So he, he was kind of giving us a little hassle anyway. I'm standing on that field where the plane's coming in with a shotgun microphone to record it in the script. It's supposed to come in treetop level. He comes at me about 10 feet above the ground oh my God. and he's coming right at me. And I basically, I fall on the ground, hold the microphone over <laughs> my head. I think I yelled, oh shit, which we edited it out. <laughs> and I later heard that he called back and said, hey, I buzzed the sound guy. <laughs> Ghost, one, one plane.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that low flyby sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing. Um, and now but, it's because you were recording it 10 feet away, not yeah. like 30 meters oh. away.
1: The recording, especially the, the speedboat recordings. So I started, you know, I uh, I had already worked with Michael and collateral and we had established a relationship. We established our relationship and I knew that I was going to do vice and I started really early in looking in libraries and trying to gather sounds. And I could not find a good library for the cigarette boat for the speedboats. Mm. And uh, for, I didn't even know exactly when I read the script. I didn't know what a go fast boat was. I saw the script. So here. So I made a phone call to a speedboat dealership in Miami, or down somewhere in Florida. And I said. Yeah. I, I wanted to get some information about go fast boats <laughs> and not realizing that it's kind of the slang for what drug runners do. Oh my gosh. Right? And the guy was a little concerned.
2: Uh- <laughs> um, He's like, sir, I am offended. Uh, we
0: don't we supply the drug runners. Thank you very much.
1: But ultimately when we went to Miami, uh, we had access to all the boats and the drivers of the boats and we Kind of staged our own little races, and uh, one day we we wanted to get that sound of the hull slapping on the on the water, which you, is really you know connected with those kind of boats. And by the shoreline, it wasn't happening. And one of the guys who was driving the boat said, "You know, we need to go further out to sea to rougher water if you want to get that." I said, "Okay." So we are going about 140 miles an hour, and I'm uh, a little excited about that. And within, you know, a short amount of time, we're like many miles out to sea.
2: You're literally it, in Cuba. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, it's 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 really rough. And we're, you know, I said to the guy, you know, uh, I've seen on TV in these boat races that sometimes uh, the wind will catch them and they'll tip over. Does that ever happen? He said, well, you know, if it does, there's an escape hatch on the bottom, but you'll be unconscious. So it doesn't matter. Oh. Um, <laughs> fortunately that didn't happen but we finished that our guys
0: recor- that guy's never going to be a, 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 an air hostess or whatever you call yeah. it like a steward you know no, giving you a little attendant. Water flight attendant yeah. whatever they call yeah um, we, no, uh, we, we finished our
1: recording for the day and the it turned out that this lead the lead guy who was on the boat i just didn't know who they were they're guys in t-shirts and flip-flops and i don't know if they're teamsters or what they are one of the guys is the world champion throttle guy. I think his name is John Tomlinson, who, of course, that's who the kind of people Michael would hire. I, I didn't realize who we were working with.
3: The keys Havana Havana Cubans don't like my business and they don't like my passport It's okay The harbor method is my constant
2: champion throttled. so in a
1: speedboat and you know you can in the in the deleted scenes you can see it more in the speedboat there's one guy that drives it and another guy that throttles it that has the deals with this two, it's two piece two person operation
2: oh and my
1: God. i didn't even know that but anyway so he was the reigning world champion we went to we went out to lunch with him once and all these people are staring we didn't know why, and because you know, <laughs> down there, he's, he was a very famous character. Anyway, we're out to sea, we're way out to sea, and I think it was him who said, you know, we're not that far from Bimini. We could, <laughs> we, we could go to lunch there.
2: Yeah, um, just pop over for a mojito. <laughs> yeah, and, uh,
1: and, and one of the assistant directors was with us, and, well, if Michael's not going, I don't think he wants you to do that. Yeah. And so we didn't get to Bimini. Um, but Gotta no, stay the, in line. <laughs> the, but the op- anyway, but the point the re- the opportunities to record on his shows were wonderful on collateral as well. I mean, he really appreciates what getting the right sounds uh, mean uh, for his shows. Unfortunately, they had the budget for us to go do that.
2: So indulge me for a second, Elliot. Like this is not this is atypical. This is not. What other director, other directors, or other, you know, depending on the budget, like they would say, just use a sound library.
1: Not everyone is isn't in tune with soundtrack. Uh, some directors are that, okay. and they even think about it up front when they're writing, the, working on the script, or when they're figuring out how they should. Have. But not everyone is. Uh, not every, and also not every movie has uh, the budgets to support it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our libraries are pretty expansive these days, but there is something special to being able to, like um, to go to, to collateral for a second. Yeah. Um, and these days it's a little touchy subject. but We went out with the armorer and collateral and recorded every single gun in the movie and got every gun. We recorded the taxis, we did all that. Michaels asked myself and my colleague if we would spend a night an entire night downtown LA just recording, just wandering around and trying to get and we found interesting sounds that we wouldn't have thought of just wandering around at three, four in the morning.
2: I'm yeah. loving this. It's like you're literally John Travolta and blowout. Yeah. 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 It's real.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, he he really appreciates what you know, uh one more collateral story, then we'll go back.
0: No, but, no, no. Please that please. We love a collateral digression. We, I was going to say the sound design completely, co- like in contrast to Vice. Vice is so sweeping yeah. and, and collateral's got that claustrophobia. Even when you said the gunshots, like one of my favorite movie gunshot sounds is the sound of the echo reverberating off the concrete walls when Cruz takes out the guys who take his briefcase. You know, well, you know that, that is exactly
1: hand. what I was just about to share oh, with you. Thank so you. That was like
0: miraculously.
1: So, Michael. Um, calls early on in the show, he calls me into his office and says, I want to, because by the way, when you work with him, we often all work in the same building, which is also kind of atypical. He likes to have the sound crew, the sound editorial crew, the music people, he likes to have everybody there. And he's moving back and forth all day long between his office and the picture department. And we were in between and we're all, it, um, it elevates my position and makes you more intimately involved when you can walk into the picture editor's room anytime and discuss a cut or do things. Anyway, he, he brought me into his office really early and said, I gotta show you this. And they had shot the scene in the alleyway. And so that alleyway uh, was adjacent to an empty parking structure. Mm. And he said, listen to this. And the, the retort off the blank was amazing. the The echo is super cool. He says, "If I, if you do anything in the movie, you leave that alone." He said, "I don't <laughs> want anything." That is the coolest sound ever. And please don't uh, don't do anything. You know, it's just amazing. So, so that
2: was recorded. That was that I was actual
1: produ- the, the reverberant sound was production. It wow. Was, wow. But, however, I'm going to share a secret now that I don't know that Michael knows. So if he listens to this. <laughs> so when I was working in that scene I didn't feel that the impact of the shot itself was as cool as it could be the reverberance is amazing so there's a little trick that sound editors can do where you just take a frame or so of like an explosion and you put it at the very beginning of a gunshot and because gun everything we do is sort of hyper-reality anyway, many layers of sound. So I did add a tiny bit of sound to the front of it, which I don't know that Michael realized, but (laughs) he's really it sounded. But the the echo of that was a key thing for him, and you picked up on it, because it is super cool sound. Yo, homie. Is
3: that my briefcase? Your briefcase? Yeah, it is. Why, you want it back? Oh, what? what else you got from me, huh? huh? Fuck.
0: Oh, yeah, it's just... That LA night, especially... And the, it's the whole theme of collateral, you know, the coyote stalking the streets, you know, it's it's that when it comes out at night, the large majority of the population's gone and this sort of this this sort of semi ghost town comes alive with all these interesting characters and there's only certain hot spots of the town and then the cab sort of navigates its way through them or or past them. Um yes. yeah, I love that echo. That's just like typifies the whole movie for me. And and it's just the coolest scene ever of Cruz yeah. saying, Yo, homie uh, It <laughs> you know? is like it's it, the yeah. Tom Cruise has probably never been better in my mind than that scene.
1: It, 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 it was, uh, collateral was a pretty amazing project to work on. And, uh, um, it was, uh, you know, we knew, we knew right away that we had, it had captured something. It was a cool movie.
0: Elliot, and... Can I ask you a question about collateral as well? Forgive us for taking this aggression, but yep. you know, Michael is such a, uh, a, a director who builds projects from the ground up and, Really hasn't been, I don't know. Like he he doesn't fall into the same category for whatever weird reason as like an author, writer, director. You know, your Tarantino as your Paul Thomas Anderson because he's yeah. such a driven producer as well and a great director. Um, can you like shed any light on what was it about the Beattie script? You know, Aussie Stuart Beatty script that made him go this has enough of a scaffold for me to imprint my personality on it. And so many of the key themes that I've done, but like, I don't have to write this, like it's, it's on the page. This, yeah, this you know, it, it's, it's true. It's true. And we talked about that sometimes amongst the
1: crew that that movie was different in that he didn't have his hands on uh, as much of the writing as in others. Although he certainly, you know, he brings in a lot of his technical experts Uh, particularly, you know, with forensics and um, for the staging and for some of the jargon. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just, it, it, uh, it really, it all worked. You know, it just, everything came together really nicely in that one where um, I think that he just, and what he did do, now, I don't know where, I don't know if, 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 how much he discussed this with the writer. I know what he did do is he had uh, uh, Jamie and Tom in way in pre-production on that and discuss their backstories. Yeah, so they did a lot of work up front talking about who they were. Tom came from an orphanage and what kind of upbringing that helped create that psycho killer person that he was and all that. So they did a lot of play acting and a a lot of work thinking about those characters and kind of riffing on where they came from and get to get them in that place with movie stars. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine mate,
0: don't worry about it. All right? jump back to Miami vice you talked about the, the topic of an armorer Katie and I've been bringing this up recently um, about you know ac- the fact that accidents happen you know you hear about it in the news but the movies that we've been talking about whether it's one heat minute or now Miami vice um, uh, and Miami nice talking about Miami vice like the level of precision that you have to have with the amount of gunfire in a michael mann film oh, yeah. especially at the level of precision from an armor perspective and just the level of precision with everything and if it wasn't so tip top like the damage could be like monumental right and 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 devastating but uh, it still strikes me because we you know we've just unpacked one of the final scenes of the show um uh the, that final shootout and i just want to i'm dying to talk to you about the scenes like that because it just feels like a total cacophony of like music and sounds and dialogue and explosions and that huge, those huge crazy elephant tine rifles or whatever the <laughs> hell they are. Those gigantic rifles that Michael used the 50 cals. And, right. uh, and, right. and I, I want to hear about what, what a monumental thing that was for you in the assembly. I can't even, I mean, I see the layers in a podcast recording. I can't even imagine the layers that you're working with in a scene like that with all the, all the oh, you know, complimenting sounds.
1: Yeah, hundreds, if more, not more layers of sound. And what was interesting in the shootout is we talked about it a lot. And uh, what we what he wanted and what we tried to do was the the um, what we looked at was there was this horrible shootout in North Hollywood about I don't know how many years ago, 25, 30 years ago. There were these guys, these really brazen guys that came out in SWAT regalia and robbed a bank or something and had this shootout with the police. And the police were underarmed at the time. And all of this was on TV, on the TV news.
2: I think I know about this. Yeah, this bank robbery. SWAT is being notified. Call 3. All officers stay
3: down. Shots are being fired from AK-47. At that time, I was assigned to the SWAT team. Multiple officers hit. Multiple officers hit. They had no care for life. And this was obvious when they come out of the bank and they start shooting at anything that moved. Uniformed police officers were outgunned. They don't have salt rifles, the suspects do.
1: As you can see, they are opening
3: fire right now. Phillips, uh, as he uh, has a malfunction with his AK-47, he drops it, he continues to walk down Archwood, takes out a Beretta 9mm handgun, starts shooting at anything that moves, and he gets shot in the hand. He drops it, picks it up, puts the gun under his chin, and presses the trigger. As he goes down, an unknown uniform patrol officer fires and hits him in the upper torso, through the side, misses the vest, and severs his spine. We then proceed to shoot under our car at him, and we hit him 28 times until he stops being a threat and he stops shooting at us. The three of us take the suspect into custody and I take the ski mask off of Emil Masrano. He looks up at me and his comment was, why don't you just put a round through my head? I have a few words with him and we then cuff him and turn him over to the detective. If this were to happen today, the incident would be over before SWAT would get there. As a result of the shooting, there are rifles in all the police cars, in all the stations, all police officers are trained with, uh, with assault rifles to be able to handle this type of a situation. The, he wanted the newscast, newsreel
1: kind of feel in, uh. in a lot of the shots, especially the wider shots, which can be a little poppier sounding, uh, in some instances, he wanted, he wanted the real gritty feel of real guns um, in that scene for more than what we often do in movie guns. Um, and so what we actually did too, is we built a library. Uh, I had a huge team on that movie. I mean, typically a sound editing crew on uh, even a large feature film could be eight people, maybe 10 people. With the editors and assistant editors and everybody, we had about 25 people. Wow. um, It was was, was just the logistics of, of keeping track of everybody. Anyway, we went through all the dailies. We went through everything that was recorded when they shot the scene and built a sound library of the production guns, which, and those were incorporated into that scene. So it was a real melange of the production gun sounds, the close-up guns when we're close in on the people were um, from the sound library. And some of those were guns I recorded. And so um, it kind of was, you know, my job, I'm gonna digress a tiny bit. As a sound supervisor, I don't always deal in reality in that my job is what helps sell the emotional content scene by scene of what the director's trying to accomplish and so within the gun battle uh we had different guns for different shots and different perspectives that we thought were the most effective guns right like the 50 caliber is not only the real gun sound but many other layers to make it the most monstrous
0: evil <laughs> yes
1: ever. you and know right
0: the, it feels know, like you also doll down the other sounds around that, that's what's really artful in kind of the, I don't know, just the drastically underappreciated art of like those guns fire and it feels like every other sound in the movie gets muted. deafened and is muted just for even like this, the most tiniest of split seconds and then the action's there and again.
1: That, that too, there's a lot of bobbing and weaving. Yes. And what do we focus on at any one time? And that's something that on the dub stage, I know Michael spent a lot of time And he'll, we will work on scenes for hours, uh, particularly with dialogue for nuance, Mm. just looking for that nuance and he'll refer to his pre-production notes just to get it in that spot that he wants it to be. And it's very exacting. There's, uh, I found both in collateral, maybe more so in collateral, but both in collateral and my advice, the goal was not to have any superfluous sound. Everything is there for a reason, you know, and I had a large enough crew and, and, and enough time that I could do that. And really like in some movies, when you have generic background, you have backgrounds of all these cars going by,
0: mm.
1: you can have sort of a library track of cars in the background and it it's a wash and it kind of works. But in his movies, we would cut the furthest back car you'd see would be specifically we put the sound in. And in the end, it really makes a difference because it's a cleaner track. It cleans up everything that there's nothing there that shouldn't be there.
2: It's so fascinating because we talk a lot about how, you know, we've listened to the commentary tracks and how everything visually is there for a reason. Oh, this is a mural I saw in this place and I'm going to put it in the background of this. I think that's the example I use every single time on this podcast. But It's so fascinating to hear that every single sound is also specific and intentionally chosen and and there for a reason. Um, I wanted to ask kind of like a basic question just about being a sound engineer or sound supervisor. I'm like fascinated by this process and this whole conversation, but at what point are you getting the script and saying, okay, we're going to need these sounds? Are you looking at the dailies or like, at what point are you starting to visualize the whole landscape of what the sounds might be that you need?
1: That's a wonderful question. And, uh, it's not consistent movie to movie. Uh, ideally, uh, when I know that I'm going to be on a project, um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll read the script very early, um, and, uh, get a sense of what the movie's about. If, um, if I have access while they're shooting and there's particular things in a movie that are unique, um, I try to get out and record them. Um, and if I can't because of distance or whatever, I will ask the production mixer if they can try to get specific things for me. Um, some movies though, and you know, sadly, it, it's, it, it is show business and, it, it's, and, and money comes into it. And the sound supervisor isn't always hired on a project early enough to do all right. that. I mean, uh, oftentimes I come on a movie after they finish shooting, the director's already done their cut and now they want to spot the movie with me. And, and then I start from there. And, you know, it's a little disadvantage to all of us. And I uh, try uh, to persuade the studios, the post-production supervisors of the benefits of starting me or someone in my position early because it, been, it helps everybody. Yeah. It, and it ultimately can actually be a cost saving thing because you're not wasting resources, doing things that they didn't want. And, there, and there's something to be said, and I'll share this too with Michael particularly, because he listens to the avid tracks so much, he's so involved in the movie every day, all day long, Uh, It was key. It was a huge, huge bonus and benefit to start early. And what I would do is myself and my team would put preliminary edits together of certain things, condense them down to just a couple tracks and give them to the picture department to put into the avid. So he would start to hear our stuff early and, and either give notes on it or embrace it. And it made everything so much smoother later uh, because you know whoever the movie, whoever the director is, whatever the movie is, they listen to their avid tracks with their picture editor ad nauseum. And when you get to the final mix stage, it can suddenly be very different. Oh, all of a sudden it's a different car and different guns and different, and, and it might be great, but it's different. And it's one more thing the director has to think about in addition right. to music and the dialogue and all the others. So um, I try to get started as early as I can. Um, And I will read the script, think about what we can do with it. And then of course there's budgetary constraints about how much you can record. If I can't record on a movie or I can do limited recording, I look into libraries. And these days there's digital libraries. It's very, there's a lot of access to libraries. People, the gear has really come down in price. People all over the world are recording sound. And so you can find libraries that you can purchase these days that cover a lot of different categories.
2: Yeah, it's just so interesting because I was thinking about, you know, if you're like the, you were talking about the sound of the the hull of the go fast boat and it's like the wave slapping against, against the hull of a go fast boat is going to sound different than the wave slapping against a... Yacht or a schooner or whatever. And so it's like you need that that deep specificity, which I think is like so interesting in such an art form.
1: It it is. And, you know, when when you get the opportunity to record, and like I said, with the speedboats in Vice, I could not find anywhere recordings that would give us what we needed. Because, you know, when I, you know, we, the, the speedboat race was in the movie up until very near the end when Michael made a decision, he didn't want to start that way. So we did a lot of work on those books. <laughs> um, we, pe-
0: people must still be benefiting from your library, Elliot, because well, that, that- We're that, cautious
1: that. about that. I mean, that's an interesting question. We're, we're cautious about the use of things that we record for specific movies.
2: Okay. If I
1: do use any of the material, um, it's usually never by itself. It's mixed into many other layers, um, and so uh, it's not as recognizable because those are unique recordings. I think the um, the only I, I let somebody borrow a few tracks. A friend of mine, I think, did the movie. I think it was Battleship or something <laughs> where they were desperate for some boat stuff, and I gave. We them need
2: a, the boat sounds.
1: <laughs> they, uh, gave, you know, and we horse trade between. Sound supervisors and places. We will trade things. Oh, you have this great whatever, and so. But um, yeah, a lot of the collateral and vice stuff has not really left my hands.
2: Is that your intellectual property?
1: Well, um, it it may well actually uh, be part of the movie itself. Okay. And and, and there's uh, there may be some a studio uh but um nobody's come and collected it <laughs>
0: <laughs> and thank god they have it um i was i i was yeah. just thinking that is you're so right about how um in the digitized world there's a phenomenal article actually recently on slash film about just movie sound it was a really great like this extensive piece on—I have it open
2: in my tabs yeah, right now. <laughs> yeah, I do
0: too. And the like the difficulty of sometimes making out different dialogue or stylistically the choices that filmmakers make around um, uh, yeah. how how the mix sounds, so that you can hear all of the you know all all of the sounds of like the area they're in, the action they're doing, plus the dialogue, and how it sounds a bit muddy. And now when you're speaking about it to us it's it's just reinforcing for me further the the digital muck like what we don't realize or some people don't realize is that like if you just get a track of like here is a street and cars that's probably like 40 layers that have been squashed into one and then you're you're maybe using that in the background of a shot and then you're going to record something else on top of it on something else on top of it and so it just becomes this like layered on layered mess of sound and that makes it harder. And that was one of the points of the article. So it's just interesting to hear how the benefits, even though it might be painstaking of actually- It is. Actively recording all those things. It's great to have it, but also, you
1: know, uh, I mean, I'm old enough and I've been around enough that I've made the transition from working in film where I was splicing Mm. and taking things together to the digital world. And um, I think Because we have this amazing equipment where you can have as many tracks as you want and you can undo most anything that you don't like and start again, there is the potential where people just throw in the kitchen sink. And, and, you know, it is called editing. (laughs) if, If You can find less sounds that do exactly what you want, then the better. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I I try to be uh, cognizant of having the right sounds and not all the sounds.
2: Yes, uh, totally. You
1: know, and uh, the whole topic you raised about dialogue, yeah, it's a real hot-button topic now about understanding dialogue in movies. And I know there are directors that feel, um, you're going to understand what I want you to understand. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, and they're okay with you not getting parts of the movie because they don't want you to. And, you know, for me, I look I, in my narrow little world, I've always been taught to protect the dialogue in that you if, if you don't, if the audience doesn't understand what's going on, they're not engaged. If they're not engaged, then maybe they don't care. Yes. So um, I, I feel that, it, you know, my job is to present tracks where the dialogue is intelligible there's a point in time where it's out of my hands and there's creative choices made on movies and you know I, as a sound supervisor I feel I'd be negligent not to raise my hand every now and then and say can we try this or do this but ultimately the director is the final arbiter of what the movie should be it's there and, and so uh, and I do provide a service and <laughs> right um, I understand that but I, I don't personally always agree with them.
3: Leave us. No. Stay here. I'm in charge.
0: Do you feel in charge?
3: I've paid you a small fortune. that this gives you power over me? What is this? Your money and infrastructure
0: have been important. Till now. What are you? I'm Gotham's Reckoning. And the bold time you've all been living on. Beautiful.
1: Unnecessary.
0: I was just going to say it is a very interesting topic and a hot button topic at the moment. But you sound mixed a scene that typifies that you can have both. You know, the collateral nightclub scene, you hear every bit of low talking subtle dialogue and then the gazes of people who aren't talking but are menacing and threatening to kill you and then glorious chaos right like of people going you know firing through music playing needle drops you know all those amazing things that then make up that soundscape and i just feel like the question i think is more frustrating for some people is is this genuinely the director's the director's choice to make this unintelligible, or is I know, it just that's what bad, I- <laughs> or is it just bad?
1: You know, um, when and when a movie, and I'm probably saying stuff that you know and you've talked about. When they shoot a movie, they particularly try to use directional microphones mm. to get what the actors are saying and not the peripheral sounds. And then it's my job to help later recreate the atmosphere of everything else. By doing that, you do hopefully have a little bit of control over the dialogue so yeah. you can place it where you want to. Uh, so the, so you're hoping that that's been accomplished and then that chaos, the, all those layers that you're talking about are something that we can recreate and control. Yes. And, and so like in Fever, right, there's so many layers, there's so much going on uh, in that scene that... Um, you know, if I, I I can't remember how much was ADR and how much we had it because with all those actors and all that action, I'm sure that there was it was somewhat of a cacophony on set. <laughs> but it is a ballet, to, truly, right? To find the peaks and valleys and and present and present the scene where it gives you everything you want to hear, you know, and not it's hard to
2: accomplish. Is Michael a director who wants the dialogue to be intelligible?
1: No, not particularly.
2: Oh, <laughs> I, I, I think
1: that it's only if it suits him. I see. No, I, I, I think um, he does. He is, he is somebody that does what's right for the movie. And okay. Maybe in movies like The Insider or something where there's so much precise dialogue that you have to have, yes, that's critical you know maybe you know but in other other i think it's it's situational and right is um yeah he'll do what i noticed uh whatever is right for the film for the scene Mm -hmm. and uh he's flexible that way i don't think there's one absolute way he works Um, yeah i
0: i i think in both those movies especially in vice it's like the moments you need to hear you know sunny picking up a uh picking up a waitress in the opening scene, whether it's something like that or or, um, or whether it's, you know, big confessions, that that great moment where Isabel and Sonny are walking along uh, together, talking about everything that they see is Archangel, De Jesus Montoya. And all those scenes, like, you can hear everything crystalline. It's perfect. But then in the, the gun battle scenes, there is, you know, sometimes you can hear the dialogue between the characters, and other times it doesn't, it absolutely doesn't matter. Like, you guys actually just drop the sound down and you know fire and the music and...
1: Yeah, um, with dialogue and vice, one of the larger challenges, too, was deciding how much of Lee we would understand and need to understand, because he presented her with a daunting task. Yeah. You know, in that not only was she speaking English, which wasn't the easy for her, native to her, but her English was Cuban-accented.
2: <laughs> right.
1: That, her, char- her character grew up there. So she had dialect coaches working with her. And that, that, took, that sometimes w- was a lot of work to present all her lines exactly how he wanted.
0: Mm-hmm. I Did you
1: have to-, to
2: do ADR? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, she came. She's great. I mean, she's a huge star in her country.
2: And yeah, she's d- like the biggest movie star in China. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, uh, but she was totally just on board and coming in and doing whatever it took. So, yeah, she would come in and I, I think that her lines were written out in phonetic f- or written in a way that made it easier for her to do this Cubanized uh, English.
2: Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, he, he, he presented her with a challenge and, uh, um, you know, that it, it, it did take work with everybody to get it out just right.
0: Do you have a favorite scene in in Vice now that you've you know when you were putting it together and all the sound came together? Do you have a favorite much like the collateral uh, uh, yeah. gun scene that you um, that you kind of like hang your hat on? That's your favorite scene of everything that you guys were working towards in that movie. Um, that's a tough one. I mean, probably the shootout um, is what I look
1: at as far as just from my little world of sound and sound design. Um, I mean, I'm really pleased with uh, what we got to do with, with the speedboats, which, unfortunately, you don't get a lot of now. But the speedboat stuff was wonderful. The Ferrari. So we, uh, when we recorded the Ferrari, um, we had the guy who drove it in the movie for the stunts. And because we, they were still shooting the movie when we were in Miami, and Michael didn't think it was a good idea for me to drive the Ferrari. <laughs> just, just in case I... <laughs> did something bad because there were only, I think, two of those cars in the United States at that time. It was wow. a brand new Ferrari. And we had rented this airfield to, and so for ourselves. And you can take the car and drive it up and down the airfield as fast as it can go. So we, um, we recorded uh, that. We recorded all their vehicles, but the Ferrari was particularly cool and drive and being i was in the passenger side with the guy and my colleagues were recording next to us as well to get the exterior and the interior but we had who knew
2: sound engineering was so dangerous (laughs) and thrilling
1: this this movie was really risky on the 195 causeway
0: You almost got hit by a plane. You almost got hit by a plane. <laughs> Driving a Ferrari as fast as a brand new Ferrari well, goes down oh my an airfield.
2: I got to say
1: what amazed me in doing it was two things that were interesting. One wasn't how fast it went was how fast it stopped. Oh, wow. Like, I don't know how fast, 180 and we're running on a runway and he's still going and I am kind of like worried. And then he hit the brakes and it just stopped. Holy crap! Uh,
2: that, oh my god, that,
1: that was amazing. The other thing about being in the Ferrari, I remember, it was really, really hot in Miami and, and the environs really hot, really muggy. And when we were doing the recordings, the windows were up and the air conditioning was off mm. because have it on, it would ruin the recording. And it was so hot inside oh the Ferrari doing those recordings. So oh we, my god, we were dying. <laughs> yeah, you know, we we give it all for our.
2: Yeah, put it, you're leaving blood, sweat, and tears on the field for this sound, this crisp, pristine <laughs> sound. Um, for the shootout, did you have to make sure you got each different? Because we were looking at the gun list for the shootout, and it's like so many different guns. I mean, did you have to go through and say, okay, we have this specific gunshot for this thing, and like, were you that precise with it, or or were you, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah we we uh, would look at the different guns, find the sounds we wanted to use for each gun and so part of the crew and part of the my crew was so large that i could have specific sound editors that were tasked with just certain things wow like all like there were people that all they would do would be the carbides or people that would just they would and so right with the gunfight um there were editors that were working on specific parts of it and so you could follow through and do those guns, make sure that it's the same sound and the same gun each time we see it. Um, wow. and so many layers to, to a gun shot too. It's, it, you, it's not just a simple, here's the recording of the gun going pop, up, pop, up, up, up. You may have three different sounds you're layering just for the shooting. There's a sound for pulling the trigger. There's a sound for uh, the shells popping out. Of course, all the ricochets and all the impacts
0: all around. Yeah, I was, you I know. was, I was just going to say in that final scene. Sorry to interrupt early, but I was just going to say in that final scene, what blows me away is it's gun, it's the shots hitting cars, hitting containers, hitting bodies, hitting yeah. armor. And then one of my favorites is Justin Thoreau when he's on the ground, and the gun follows him when he does his little roly-poly. So right. it's him rolling on the ground, and then bullets hitting dirt like thump 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 thump. Like it makes it completely different sound to the sounds we're accustomed to. And so like, yeah, that must just be, and in amongst everything else.
1: I'm the most fortunate guy in the world. I love what I do. <laughs> it's so much fun. I get paid to, you know, put, make crazy noises. <laughs> and,
2: I love it. You know,
1: I mean, of course there's some tedium and the, so the aspects of it, I have to do with spreadsheets and this and that. But the fact that I think of myself more in the artistic world and the fact that you can I can be an artist and make a living is not lost on me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I love, it's really, it's a it's and it's a real, I, I call it, it's almost an SM experience when you present your sound on a stage because a lot of it it can be subjective. Yeah. And it's like when it's going well, everyone's happy, it's good, your jokes are funny, it's it's you know, and if some if some aspect of it isn't right. I was like, you, know? <laughs> yeah, you know, And it's not always things that are as clear cut as guns and cars. It's movies with spaceships and monsters, and who's to say what they sound like?
2: Right. You have to invent those yeah. sounds. Plenty, yeah. Right? Oh, oh my gosh. Plenty and of so guys.
1: There's often there's there is you are living on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, it's it's very it's a very fun part of our industry that is kind of overlooked or even within the industry a lot of people don't know what we do yeah
2: i know i feel like everyone makes a joke every year at the oscars like what's the difference between sound mixing and sound editing and it's like i don't really even know to be honest and finally
1: (laughs) and i think in some way sadly now it doesn't matter because we've combined the category and it's oh right it's like the baftas now where there's just a sound award Um, right but yeah, I mean, I, I've been on academy committees and tr- thinking we can send instructional videos to all the members uh, to say, hey, this is what a mixer does, this is what an editor does. And these days, there's a lot of gray because the tools allow either side to kind of do both. I do a lot of mixing in my room before mm-hmm. I get to the dub stage just because okay. of constraints. Uh, so, and you know, so it is grayer than it ever used to be as far as the delineation between the skills. But yeah, I mean, you know, there was a, one of the trade papers every year would do this column where they'd have the secret voters.
2: Yes, THR does that. Yeah. And, and I think uh, it's THR. Inevitably, yeah.
1: Inevitably, whoever that person was would say, I don't know what those guys do. I the
2: loudest one
1: or whatever, you know. So it frustrated us. And sometimes I was frustrated with the Academy in that they would have animated characters or comedians present that award. And I thought, oh, come on, you know.
2: Have Michael Mann present it. Have Michael Mann present
1: it. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I, that would give it a little
2: ground to us.
1: Yeah. Yes. And,
2: Someone at a director just, who appreciates a good sound editor.
0: And, and have him play the shootout from Heat to get their attention and go, uh, see that? <laughs> See that? That wouldn't exist without no, these guys. No.
1: On some movies I've been on, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, when they do the DVD, they'll do an extras side of it, mm. and I've done a couple of movies where we talked about the layers of sound that actually make up a scene that you see. Yes, and how it isn't just all recorded on set, and how it isn't all just there, and and you dissect it layer by layer and see how it's constructed. It's really interesting. It's really cool. And, uh, uh, I think, um, you know, it sheds a little light. Uh, you get to step behind the curtain.
0: I think it's the thing that makes me appreciate it more is, and maybe it's just the sheer volume of movies that both Katie and I watch, but you just can tell almost instantaneously a movie that is mixed and sound designed well, like it just, some movies just don't, I don't know. It's like, the hairs on your arms don't stand up or something like that. It's just something that the atmosphere of the entire production just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Um, And so, yeah, this is really implicit thing. And it's funny, um, Pablo, uh, 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 Pablo Sorrentino's new movie, The Hand of God recently came out and it's really funny. There's a scene with a young character in it. Who's kind of uh, a prototype for him is talking about this, the, the, Hypnotic sound of speedboats hulls hitting the water, and he goes like this. He goes, One of the guys is describing how amazing it is to be out there, and he goes, Doof, Doof, <laughs> Doof. He does it with his mouth, and I'm like, Okay, that's that's like someone doing an impression of the Miami Vice boat sound, like that <laughs> lovely sound that happens when Gong Li and Colin Farrell are riding in that boat. Yeah, and, just, doof, doof. Yeah. and I'm like, Oh, he gets it, he gets yeah. it. Um, yeah, how important it, it is. It, it,
1: it, you have a director that's on board when all the, when, when it all coalesces, it really is magical. Mm. It, it really, it does, it, it does make a difference I think. And uh, those opportunities uh, were there with Michael.
0: Elliot, I have to ask one more thing just in wrapping up because um, we've increasingly started to build out the context of, you know, I think feels like broader filmmaking techniques, Katie, maybe it's like, like it's trends uh, happening in different films, but you work with Michael in collateral, which is his most unabashed, you know, digital photography thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, you know, he's a a character who has embraced technology in a whole raft of different ways, mixing different film stocks and shooting styles and, you know, some video, small handheld stuff in amongst these massive epics that are shot on 35. But can you talk a little bit about like what, like the... I guess the attitude around collateral at the time of the digitization, because I I imagine with you guys, you would have been on the cutting edge of whatever sound equipment and sound recording stuff was happening already um, mixing it in with now this digital video. Can you talk about that environment? Was there anything unique about it?
1: Um, I mean, for us, I mean, it was, it certainly was cool to see. I mean, when we, when we got uh, to look at what was going on, it opened up a lot of more worlds for sound because uh, the black was different. You yes. know, in the digital war shooting at night, digitally opened up more opportunities, I think for us to see things that maybe we could address with
2: sound. Oh, wow, I would never have thought of that. That's the, so interesting. The layers of
0: the image.
1: Yeah, the image just uh, digital black and film black are different. Totally and different, yeah. And he, we could look at things and see things that maybe we would not have seen if it was shot on film. That uh, I think we tried to uh, address to some degree. But uh, sonically, um, I mean, as far as I mean, the digital world for sound in two thousand six, two thousand seven was well established, and we were we were you know trying to push the envelope as much as we can, trying different things. Uh, but um, Vice was not a huge design movie in the abstract sense Uh, uh, and and Collateral uh, as well. Uh, I mean, there was moments where we would get tonal and do things, uh, but um, I know in Collateral, uh, it was certainly clean, specific, exact sounds at all times. You know, we went out. We they Michael had somehow arranged it where we they shut down the train system, and we went out at late at night downtown to Metro, you know, Metro Seventh Metro, and we had like a three car train to record, and the guy would take it back and forth and do whatever we wanted to do because that the metro system was relatively new then Mm -hmm. in L.A. And so we built an entire library of the Metro train uh, late at night, uh, uh, you know, going out with the, the people that, that run it. And right, that, I'm really proud of that and collateral of what when we had done six track recordings in the train a different parts of the train. And so when you listen to it and through the speakers, you kind of, you know, the, you know, the clunky going through the speakers and all that stuff and every, everything, it was, those were wonderful. Recordings um, and opportunities that were given. So um, I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly. No, you,
0: you're, you're definitely no, you you are because it's just uh, I don't know. It's just in the last couple of episodes, you know these these little signposts in Michael Mann's career and these trends that are happening. It seems to be, you know, it, it says a lot about what the industry doing at different times. And your chat's been extremely illuminating for me like around the different layers and i'd never even thought about the digital blacks and like having a a different depth of field and therefore things you can address in the frame that's just amazing so yeah. no you definitely answered that um i think that's all that uh i think that's an amazing spot to go out i just want to say thank you uh This has been an amazing chat and i hope that people have gotten as much out of it as i feel like katie and i have gotten out of it as nerds um, about that movies. was
2: so i could ask you like so many more questions. I'm just so fascinated by this uh, field and don't know that much about it. So it's so thank you so much for sharing your expertise because it's been such a treat to listen to you. I'm
0: fun to be with, with And And we, I mean, there's monsters in your movies. You were the sound effects editor on Triple X. I mean, there's so many things that we could go down the rabbit hole with. I know. And, and I was I'm looking so, at the IMDb I'm like, damn, I want to ask about this. I mean, the, the latest thing before, you know, I. I've got. I'm sure there's things I want to talk about with the thing, but anyway, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> pause it there. We're gonna put a cap on it. Yeah, maybe we we'll do it again. We might yeah. we might ask Elliot back another time to just chat about a bunch of random <laughs> things. But look, thank you so much for chatting to us yeah. and sharing. Um, and we are so grateful, uh, very very grateful for one of your collab uh, collaborators, Joseph Sai, um, who is uh, uh, so kindly. Uh, introduced the show to you and basically nagged you on our behalf to be a part of the show and we are extremely grateful for him and uh and, and thank you thank you joe um guys this has been another episode of miami nice we'll catch you at eleven seventeen next saturday night take it easy bye